All right, you can turn to the book of Malachi as you are having a seat. Uh, if you don't know where Malachi is, said last week, find Matthew, turn left one book, and you're right there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, I also know that we, we get a lot of uh, visitors in the summer, and so if you're new to Creekside, uh, I'm not Matt Morton. Uh, Matt usually usually teaches here, but Matt, we've done a little rotation. Matt is at Southwood, Blake is at Anderson. I'll be at Creekside for the next uh, few weeks. But uh, it's fun for me to get to see a lot of my, my friends I haven't seen in quite a while. And I'm very, I'm deeply committed to the, to the Creekside campus. I actually, I drive out and, and look at the new site at least twice a week. I, I'm driving home, I'll call my wife and say, hey, you want to meet me out there? You want to walk? You want to pray? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply thrilled that we have an opportunity to be here on the south end of town because there's, there's just so much growth out here. There's so much opportunity for people who don't know Jesus or they haven't found a church yet for the Creekside campus to become a disciple-making, spiritually multiplying church, which is, as Johnny said, really that's the essence of what we're, we're going after with, with uh, every knee. Uh, one of my life verses is from the book of Revelation, where John has this vision and he sees men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and they're before the throne and they're worshiping. And, and as I, I read that to myself constantly and I envision that, and I think if that's the end of the story, if that's if that's where God's directing all of history, then I want my day to be aligned with that. Right? I want to be pouring out my life so that people can, can find Jesus and they can know him and they can begin to grow personally with him and they begin to see themselves as spiritual multipliers. And so, you know, a few years ago, we started this process of, of planting churches. You know, Grace has been around for 54 years, uh, which that's actually an easy number for me to remember because I'm 54 years old. So the church started same year I was born. And uh, we went for a long time, just kind of growing consistently. And then when we were at that Anderson campus and we were full, we realized, you know, we need to do something different. And so we planted Southwood. And then a few years after that, we started Creekside. And now we're looking at planting a church in Bryan. And we're looking at opportunities around the U.S. to plant university family churches because we realized uh, if we really want to have a deep impact uh, on this nation, on the world, on our community, we need to multiply churches. And if we want to multiply effective churches, then we need to have churches that are packed with disciple makers. Right? So it may be that you don't know how to be a disciple maker yourself. And if that's the case, please come talk with me afterwards or talk to Dusty. Uh, we can help you learn how to share your faith with your family. Right? Get to the words of the gospel, right? Live it out, be transformed, but then get to the gospel with your family or your neighbors or your coworkers. Because what we really want is we want to plant churches that aren't just drawing people in from other churches, but they're drawing in people who don't know Jesus at all. And then we're teaching them how to walk with Jesus, right? How to feed themselves. And then we're giving them a vision to pour out their lives and make disciples of others. And then we get so big that we have to start over and plant another church, right? That's, that's what we want to do. And so that's why I walk around Creekside and I pray over that property and I say, God, make this into a church planting church. Make this into a church that is just packed with spiritual multipliers. So uh, I'm... I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to get to be here again with you this morning again. If you're not there yet, we're going to be in Malachi. Uh, that's where we were last week. And I'm going to start by telling you a story about a couple of your pastors. All right, so this is a Matt Morton, Chris Thompson story. Uh, I met, and actually Blake Jennings too. So I met Matt and Chris and Blake when they were students at A&M. They were living with a fourth uh, student, a guy named Nathan Sorrell, who's one of our former missionaries. They were all living in Scandia apartments. So uh, if you've been around Bryan College Station uh, forever, you know that Scandia has been there forever, right? It's just these ancient, nasty apartments right across the street from Anderson. 
And uh, I had an open invitation since my office was across the street. I could come over any time, hang out with the boys. And uh, it would have been scary, except for the fact that Chris Thompson lived with him. And Chris, like, kept everything in order and everything neat. <laughs> you know Chris at all, right? The, the other three, uh, they're pigs. And... Um, <laughs> But I'd go over and Chris would be vacuuming the floor. He'd be cleaning their dishes, right? I mean, Chris kept everything in order. So I felt safe going over to uh, their apartment. And I, see, I saw the Malones as I walked in. You know that this is true because uh, you visited their apartments. Josh lived by, close by, I think, as well. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, to visit college guys' apartments could be a frightening thing. But Chris kept it cool. So they would have uh, an event every Tuesday night. It's called uh, Mac and Cheese Night. And Matt would make huge vats of macaroni and cheese, and they would invite their roommates and friends and neighbors by, and everyone would come in every Tuesday night for three years. They had mac and cheese night. And so uh, one night they're having mac and cheese night, and I had an open invitation to go to mac and cheese night. Uh, one of their neighbors came over, a guy named Scott. And a little background on Scott, he, he was at the Bush School at the time, and somehow he had gotten to know uh, George and Barbara pretty well, so when they showed up, he might go and carry their bags in or walk their dog or whatever, and Scott's standing there, but he's around mac and cheese night, and uh, Scott says, hey, I have a great idea. What would you guys think if I invited George and Barbara Bush to come to mac and cheese night? Wouldn't that be awesome? And they're like, oh my gosh, that'd be amazing, right? Because if you know anything about what George and Barbara Bush were like, they might show up, right, to mac and cheese night at Scandia apartment. I mean, secret service in tow, which... Anybody needs it, Scandia, but they might show up, right, for mac and cheese night, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, that'd be amazing, amazing, and then all of a sudden, there's kind of a lull, and, and Matt said, I wonder if we should serve a salad, <laughs> right? I mean, maybe we should take it up a notch if George and Barbara come and put a salad on the table, and you know, I, I love that story about those, those boys, but it makes me wonder, a, a serious point, I think, what would I, what would I serve if I had the opportunity to put a meal in front of George and Barbara Bush. What would you serve? Probably not mac and cheese, right? And you might, you might say, well, it's not even enough to add a salad and we wouldn't put out the leftover pizza, right? I mean, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't serve things left over. You'd serve your best. You, you might even dip into your savings a little bit because this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a former president and his wife in your home for a meal. And I want to make a, a, use that as a metaphor because in Malachi's day, the people were just going through the motions of worship and they were putting in front of the Lord their leftovers. Because right, worship, in a sense, is pictured as a meal. The altar is a table. God invites his people to come and they bring food, right? Or they bring an offering before the Lord. But the people had become spiritually apathetic. They had been restored to the land. They had rebuilt the temple. They had put the walls up in Jerusalem. They started out enthusiastic, but then they became apathetic. And they're bringing God uh, second best, third best, leftovers, things that were of no value to him. And he said, your, your hearts are not in worship. And so he sent Malachi, the prophet, to stir up their hearts so that they would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, so they'd give God their absolute best. And I think this is a great passage. Just kind of let the Spirit reach into our hearts and challenge us, and test us, uh, are we giving God our best, or are we just bringing him the leftovers? So I want you to read with me Malachi chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. 
Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? What Malachi says is this. God is worthy of our best worship. The the people are in the land, but they're struggling. Most of them are poor. They don't see the value in worshiping God, and they're, in a sense, really afraid to bring their best, and they're wondering, can God provide for me? And so they pull back from the Lord. They keep going through the motions. Notably, they did not uh, drift back into idolatry, which was one of the causes that, that removed them from the land. But it's not sincere worship from the heart. In other words, it's, it's worthless worship. So what does it mean to actually worship God? We talk about it a lot. Um, this is a worship service. Um, we discuss worship. What does it mean? Uh, in English, the word literally is worth-ship originally, and it means to proclaim or demonstrate worth. And it means to, to announce or to prove that something is valuable that is worthy of worship. In Hebrew, the word literally means to fall down. And the idea is this. The Hebrews use very, very graphic imagery. If I fall down in front of something, it's above me, and I'm proclaiming it is more valuable than I am. But the offerings that the people are bringing to the Lord are not even valuable to them. And so that doesn't show God that they value him. Remember, in Leviticus, it said, when you bring an offering, I want you to bring your best. Bring the firstborn. Bring the first fruits. Bring the most valuable that you have, because when you bring something that is of value to you, you're showing me that you value me, that you hold me in even greater value than what you possess. But instead, the people are bringing what is worthless, worthless worship. So why did God ask them to bring anything? Did he need their material wealth? Well, no, of course not, right? God created all things, and he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and I could make a thousand more hills with a thousand more cattle. So I don't need your material goods, but what I want is your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Give me what is first. Give me what is best. Why? Because I'm worthy. Right? I'm worthy. And so God reaches into our lives and he tests our hearts in all of these different areas. Maybe our time, it may be our finances, it may be our skills, it, it may be any area of our life. He says, I want you to bring me your first, I want you to bring me your best. Now let me give you an illustration. Um, I, I uh, actually do, I'd say I do most of the grocery shopping for our family. Yeah, I probably do more than half uh, because I go to the store like four times a week um, I'll, as, as I'm driving home, I always, bef- not driving, but before I drive home, I text my wife and I say, do you need anything from the store? And the answer is almost always yes. So, uh, I swing through the store probably at least four times a week. Sometimes the list is real short, you know, just milk, eggs, bread, sometimes longer. But, uh, I always go to Kroger cause it's on the way on Rock Prairie. I know the store like backward and forward. I know what's on every aisle. I'm super systematic. So I know where to go. And so I always park on the same, in the same area and I go in through the same door so I can run the same circuit through Kroger. So I go in the left door. Anybody use Kroger in here? 
Anybody? Okay, so as you go in the left door and you look immediately to your left, what department's on the left? Anybody remember? Thank you, flowers. The, the lady said, no, I didn't, the two guys who raised their hand, you didn't know that. That's not good. Okay, it's flowers. Like the florist shop is, is right on the left there. And so from time to time, I try to kind of make it a habit. I will stop and I will get my wife flowers. Now, like before you think well of me because of this, please don't because I, I, have, I see no value in cut flowers, right? I mean, personally, for me, it just seems like an absolute waste of money, right? As soon as you cut them, what happens? They die, right? They die. So I'm like, I don't get the point. I don't understand. And, you know, we've had this conversation. But I buy them because my wife loves them, and they communicate to her that I value her. So I buy flowers for her, and right? And I don't just walk in and just go grab some and you know, throw it in the cart or whatever. I kind of look at them while I say, okay, are these fresh? Are they wilting a little bit? Is it the kind she loves? She likes Astromeria. I think, am I saying that right? Yeah, so I, I know what those look like. And I, but I'm because I don't want to get home and they're kind of nasty and gnarly and half dead and got a sale ticket on them, right? Because I want to communicate to her that she matters to me. The flowers hold no value to me. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of psychological distress to purchase them but that's part of how I communicate my love for her in making the sacrifice to show her that I love her. Now, I'm going to tell you another, another staff story. This is about Brad Evans. Um, Brad works over at our, our Anderson campus. And uh, I did ask Brad's permission before I told this story because it doesn't cast him in the best of light. But uh, he did say I could tell the story. Before Brad was married, he was a, a single guy. He was living with another single guy. He was on staff with Campus Crusade. There were two of them living in a house. There were some single girls also on staff with crew on their team. And uh, Brad and his roommate discovered that the local florist shop, at the end of the weekend, after the rush, they would have flowers left over that they couldn't sell, so they would take those flowers and they put them in the dumpster. And Brad and his roommate discovered that the florist shop put flowers in the dumpster when they put them in the dumpster. And they, if they timed it just right, they could get there before the dumpster was emptied or anybody put stuff on top of the flowers. And so every week they made this circuit and they would go and they would collect these armloads of flowers and they would divide them up and they would deliver flowers to all of the girls on their staff team, which they just, they love. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing, right? And they're just bringing them flowers week after week after week. And they just loved it until they discovered that they had been rescued from the dumpster, right? They're like, yeah, there was no love in that whatsoever. It communicated the opposite of, I value you, right? Our worship is to communicate value. Let me give you one more story. Uh, when I was in college, a group of us friends, uh, we, we none of us had girlfriends but, but one guy, and he... he uh, decided he wanted to marry this girl, and we're all fired up for him, kind of bummed for us, but it's really cool because he's going through this process. He goes, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy her a ring. We go, oh, that's amazing, right? A few weeks later, he said, hey, I got the ring. Do you guys want to see it? Oh, absolutely, let's see it. So he pulls out the ring, he opens it up, and I swear to you, I'm not exaggerating. At first, we couldn't see the diamond, right? I mean, like, it wasn't small. It was just like, it was like a sliver of carbon. or something. I mean, it was just like, what? And, and we looked at each other like, oh no, this is not going to go good at all. We're like, oh, that's really beautiful. And he's super fired up and thinking, no, 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 this is a really bad idea. It's a really, really, really bad idea. Well, you know, a couple weeks later, he gave it to her and we're, we're at his apartment. We go, so how, how'd it go? And he goes, 
That uh, didn't go good. <laughs> she, she said, yeah, yeah, she said yes, but I got to go get a new diamond. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't that she was materialistic. It's that, it's that she wanted to feel like he valued her. And this diamond was valueless. I mean, it was just ridiculously tiny. So he needed to make a sacrifice to show her that he loved her. What's happening here in Malachi's day is that the people don't value the Lord, and so their worship is worthless. Read with me in verse 12. The Lord says, you're profaning it. That is my name. My name is it's my reputation. My name is who I am. It's, it's my character qualities. It's my works. It's my attributes. My name represents who I am, and you're profaning it. Literally, you're regarding me as common, as if I'm like everyone else. But I'm not. There's no one else like me. You're regarding my name as common in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff, it, sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? You're bringing me the leftovers. You're coming to the table, which is our moment of intimacy, and you're despising it. To despise means to look down on something. If I'm looking down on something, I see myself as above that thing. If I fall down before something, I see it as above me, and that's worship. I'm proclaiming that God is great, and he's greater than I, and he's worthy of my best worship. So what's the solution to this apathy? Read with me in verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an, altar, an offering from you. The solution is this. He says, I just want you to just shut the gates. Just stop. I want you to close the gates to the temple. And just, I want you to stop your worthless worship for a minute and think about what you're doing. And think about who I am. And think about this transaction between us. I'm a great God. I'm actually the only God. I'm creator of the universe. I'm sustainer of all life. I'm the one who's given you redemption and rescued you out of darkness and put you into my family. I'm the one that loves you faithfully and consistently. I'm the one who's given you every good gift that you have in life. I am your all in all. So I just want you to stop for a minute and think about what's happening between us. Read with me in verse 11. Because from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord who commands the armies. End of verse 14. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So what is worthy worship? Well, I'm going to give you a couple qualities. The first is this. Worthy worship is sacrificial. Right? The sacrificial system required sacrifices, right? It cost something. It was by nature sacrificial. Well, let me tell you one more Brad Evans story. I want to rescue Brad <laughs> for just a moment. Um, apparently he figured things out that uh, these offerings of Dumpster flowers really didn't communicate love. So later on, he met Susan, having figured out this lesson. And uh, he wanted to marry Susan, but he needed to buy a ring. 
we're back to the ring. But, but, but Brad didn't have any money. But he did have some, some assets. So uh, does anyone in here know Brad at all, like personally? Okay, a couple people. What, is, what does Brad love to do? Okay, hunt and fish. This is the, what Brad loves to do is hunt and fish. Brad taught me how to hunt. This is his whole life. He grew up on a farm in Missouri. He, he's field and stream, man. That, that is Brad Evans' favorite thing is actually to be on the stream hunting, right? So be in a boat hunting uh, ducks. That's just the best. All His worlds combine here and converge, and he loves it. So Brad had uh, a really nice boat that when it's fishing season, he could fish. When it's hunting season, he could be on the river and he could uh, hunt ducks and he had uh, an ATV that he could go around and find the deer that he shot or the turkeys or whatever. And so uh, Brad sold his boat and he sold his ATV to buy Susan a ring. So if you want to know what a boat looks like on somebody's finger, <laughs> look at Susan's hand. And I asked him about it again recently. And he said, oh, man, totally worth it. But boy, that was a nice boat. <laughs> Worthy of the sacrifice. And he wanted to communicate to her that he loved her more than anything else in his life. Do you remember the story uh, where David ordered his, his generals to do a census? The general said, no, we, we don't want to do a census. David was trying to measure his military strength. And the prophet said, don't, don't do it. And David said, no, we're, we're going we're to take a census. And as a result of doing the census, plague broke out, broke out in Israel. And David realized he had sinned, and the angel of the Lord came to him, and he, he needed to make a sacrifice to stop the plague because his sin was affecting the nation. And so he went to a man named Arauna who owned a threshing floor. So there's a stone that's on top of a hill, which eventually would be the exact place where they would build the temple. But at that point in time, it's just a stone. It's a flat stone where the wind would come through. They'd throw the wheat in the air. The chaff would be driven away. And he sees Arauna, and he says, this is a perfect place to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Please sell me this piece of property. And Aruna says, no, my king, just take it for free. And David says, no, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I, I need to make a sacrifice. Does God need our material goods? No, he doesn't, not at all. <laughs> he really doesn't. He doesn't need our material goods at all. But we need to give. Because when God reaches in and he tests our hearts, with, again, whether it's with our material resources or with our most precious, precious resource, which is our time, right? Or, or our skills or our relationships. And he says, do you love me most? We need to be able to say yes, because the ultimate truth of the universe is this. God is worthy of our best. So he's constantly reaching into those little dark corners of our heart and saying, it seems like you're holding something back. Will you give that to me? And sometimes, literally, we have to give it. We have to give all. Or sometimes he's just testing us, and we give a portion of it, a first fruit of it. Or sometimes God says, no, I want you to keep it for now. As long as you keep it second, and I remain first. Because I'm worthy. But I'm worthy of your best. So first, worthy worship is sacrificial. Second, worthy worship is joyful and it's free. It's freely given, right? It's given out of heart, a heart of gratitude, not out of just duty or obligation. Keep your place here in Malachi and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 1. John writes, Jesus therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Have you ever been in a restaurant where uh, a waiter drops some dishes or something? What, what happens in that moment? All conversation stops, right? You hear this crash. Everybody goes like, they stop talking. They look, they turn toward the kitchen. Then conversation resumes, right? They just, it's just a, a reflex reaction. So I want you to picture what's happening here. People have gathered in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they're all having a meal. Uh, Lazarus is reclining. He's near Jesus. Martha's serving food as she usually does. And then uh, everybody's just chatter, chatter, chatter. And all of a sudden they hear glass break. What happens? All conversations stops. They turn and what do they see? Well, they see a, a socially awkward situation because there's a young woman and she's sitting at Jesus' feet and she's touching him and she's now let her hair down, which is completely inappropriate for her to do. And she's pouring this oil on his feet, and she's actually taking her hair, and she's wiping, she's touching Jesus. This young single woman is touching this single rabbi, and she's doing it in public. And so the glass breaks, everyone stops talking, they turn, and what do they see? Something completely inappropriate, and then all of a sudden they're overwhelmed by the smell. This, this nard, it's an aromatic oil from India. It's exceptionally valuable. People would, would uh, store their wealth in it, Usually, you, you can find even now one-ounce containers, just a small amount. They might put a single drop on an honored guest's head. She has a pound of it, which represents an entire year's wages. It's probably her entire life savings. And rather than taking out the cork and putting on a drop, she breaks the neck and pours all of it out on Jesus' feet, probably her entire life savings. The smell overwhelms them, right? So they hear the sound. They see this sight. The smell overwhelms them, and the disciples immediately turn to one another, and they say, what a waste. What a waste. And Jesus says, what you call waste, I call worship. What you call waste, I, I call worship. No one coerced her to do this. She did it freely. She did it joyfully. She did it because she, she just loved Jesus. And somehow the Spirit had communicated to her that Jesus would be crucified. He said, what she's doing is now to anoint me for burial. And what she's doing, people will praise her for all generations. And there might even be a church in College Station, Texas, that stops and talks about her. Jesus, what you call waste, I call worship. This was exceptionally sacrificial. She gave, she gave of her best, not just her first, she gave her all. And she didn't care about what others said about her. She didn't care about her reputation there. She just wanted to express her love for Jesus, and so she gave her all. That's worthy worship. It's, it is sacrificial, but it's joyful, and it's free. Why? Because God's worthy, right? He's worthy of our best. And sometimes we just got to stop and say, what am I doing here in this moment? This transaction between me and the Lord, am I holding something back? Am I giving my second best? Am I giving my less leftovers? Or am I digging deep and saying, God, let me show you how much I genuinely love you by giving you my best, giving you my all. So first, what Malachi says is this. God is worthy of our best worship, but second, God, God's worthy of our best service as well. Turn back to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 1. Malachi writes, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. 
If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Malachi actually zeroes in on, on the priests because the priests were responsible to teach the people how to worship appropriately. So the people are bringing inappropriate sacrifices because the priests aren't modeling appropriate worship. The people would bring an animal and it was the priest's job to inspect it and say, yeah, that's worthy of our Lord. Or to say, no, that's not your best. God doesn't actually need your animal, but he wants your heart. And what you're showing here is that you're holding your heart back from the Lord. But because the priests weren't modeling it and the priests weren't teaching it, the entire nation was bringing worthless worship. So the Lord sends Malachi specifically to talk to the priests and remind them that they're in this incredibly privileged position to serve, that is to facilitate the people's worship of the Lord, right? The, the priests were the go-between. They mediated the blessings of God. They told the people about God. They told the people how to sacrifice to God. They brought the people's needs before the Lord. And only the priests got to stand in this position. So as it says in the book of Leviticus, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all of the people, I will be honored. And only you who are of the Levitical family get to do this thing. So teach the people well. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless in his name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers because the Lord is his inheritance. Do you get that? Right? When they came into the promised land, each of the 12 tribes got a region, but Levi didn't get a region. Instead, Levi got the Lord. Right? Levi would have a few cities in each region so that they could teach the people to worship the Lord. But it was only the Levites who got to draw into the presence of the Lord, closer than anyone else. He said, that's your portion. That's your inheritance. It's better than land. It's better than riches. You get to be near me, and you get to help the people draw near to me. Now, what's interesting is, the Lord said, only the Levites will serve as the mediators of blessing for the nation. But I want the whole nation to serve as mediators of blessing to the world. Exodus chapter 19. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all of the peoples. For all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, all of you will serve as mediators of my blessings to the nations. Right? Now, there's, there's not a Levitical priesthood any longer, and the nation of Israel has not accepted Jesus as Messiah, but there are still priests on the earth. And it's you and me, church. It's a direct application. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we are not literally a race, right? We're people from all different races. And we're not a nation. We don't often share a nationality. The church is people from all different nations and all different races. He's saying this metaphorically. You now, you now are the people of God. And as such, you're, you're a priesthood, right? You're a, you're a royal priesthood. You're a kingly priesthood, right? You rule and reign and you mediate the blessings that I have for all of the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Church, that's a privilege. What's interesting is for the, for the um, priests, they actually didn't get a Sabbath, did they? But on the Sabbath, everyone else rests and they bring their offerings to the Lord. And what do the priests do? Well, the priests work, right? They make the bread of the presence and they put it before the Lord and they burn the incense and they bring it in. And then they slaughter the animals and they carve up the animals and they put the animals on the offering. The, for the priests, the Sabbath is an incredible day of work. But one of the words for worship is also translated work. Their work was their worship. And their work was to teach people how to draw near to the Lord. Church, that's what we do now. Right? Our, our work is our, our worship. Our work is to mediate the blessings of God to a broken and fallen world. And it's an incredible privilege. But sometimes privileges can feel like burdens, can't they? Right? Because it requires effort and it requires courage. It may be difficult. Um, you know, you go back at Thanksgiving or Christmas break and you're with family and they don't believe Jesus and they don't like the life that you've chosen. And yet you've got to live a different life in front of them and you've got to look for opportunities to open up conversations of the gospel. Or maybe it's with a coworker and they're resistant to you and they're resistant to the gospel, but you have to consistently love and you have to forgive and you have to initiate. And it's difficult. It's, it's a burden, but it's a privilege. But it's, it's a privilege to worship. It's a privilege to, to serve. Because we're serving and worshiping the one true God, the creator of the universe, who is unique. Now, I remember when I was, uh, when I was at seminary, there were, it was an incredible privilege to sit and to study God's word. I did it for four years, but I'll tell you, for four years, sitting and studying, uh, it, there were times when it got really exhausting and it felt like a burden. And one of the reasons was because it was really expensive, right? It, was, it took a lot of time. Uh, you know, in four years, normally you get a master's and a PhD. It's a four-year master's program. It's really long. It's a lot of work. Uh, when I started at Texas A&M University, I was paying $4 a credit hour, right? And, and while I was a student, they, they jacked up the cost of tuition all the way to $16 a credit hour. <laughs> I remember there's outrage on campus, $16 a credit hour, which I know is crazy now, but I left a public institution. I went to seminary, private institution. I was paying hundreds of dollars a credit hour, and I was poor, I had a little bit of savings that I used. My parents sent me a little money. My sister sent me money. Then I worked menial jobs. I worked as a security guard. I took tickets at a garage. I moved furniture. And all my friends went on, and they were getting good jobs with, with, with banks and you know, uh, some of my economist friends with consulting firms. And they were buying houses, and they were getting married, and they were getting new cars. And I'm watching them move, move ahead in life. And I'm stuck, man. I'm literally living below the poverty line. It's living kind of in a ghetto neighborhood. And I'm, I'm paying out the nose for school, and I'm only getting a master's. And periodically, I just had to stop and say, but wait, but this is a privilege. I'm spending my hours and days studying the Word of God. That's a privilege. And so I would remember, I'd remind myself of that first day that I walked into a chapel, and I was just overwhelmed with that sense of wonder and gratitude and thanks that I got to do this thing. It felt like a burden at times, but it was a privilege. And a few years ago, I, um, I ran across a letter. This was sent from uh, an African student. He, was, he actually applied to go to seminary at, in, at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he hadn't been able to attend yet. And so he sent this letter to one of the professors who read it in class. He said this, Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus. My wife and I are still trusting the Lord for scholarship from Dallas Seminary to enable me to enroll the next school year. 
Our village was attacked by rebel forces and we lost everything we had. I would appreciate were you to email me a photocopy of my letter of acceptance from DTS. Kindly consider my request. My letter of acceptance went missing when some unknown gunmen stayed in my home after we ran away from our house. <laughs> I discovered while I was at seminary that uh, genuinely the most godly people were the international students because they had this, this profound sense of gratitude. And they had made even greater sacrifices. It's, it's a privilege, people, for us to gather here freely. There aren't police coming in and arresting us. There's no one shutting us down. There's, there's air conditioning that works most of the time. There's you know sound system that works. There, there's, we, we have chairs we can set up. It's a comfortable place. We have freedom to go out. We can tell our friends and our family and our neighbors about Jesus. We're not going to get arrested. Uh, we have homes to live in and cars to drive. Our, our level of wealth is far above that of most people in the world. It's an incredible privilege that we have to, to live here, to worship here, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. We, we understand what life is about, don't we? We know that Jesus died to remove our debt of sins forever, and we have meaning and purpose. And what we're investing in when we invest in the lives of others, that lasts for eternity. We know all those things. It's an incredible privilege, and sometimes we just need to stop and remember the privilege that we have to, to worship the Lord and to serve him and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as we close, I want you to just uh, think about a couple things. And I would encourage you maybe to write these down. Think about them uh, this week. If you're married, I would, consider you, I would encourage you to maybe sit down with your spouse and, and ask yourselves these questions. If you're single, sit down with a friend and kind of go over these together and, and let the Lord do a little searching in your heart. Are you actually giving God your best? Or are you giving God your leftovers? Has worship kind of become a thing that you're just going through the motions? You've done it for so long. Not really tuned into the fact that this is the creator of the universe who's invited you into intimacy with him. And he's worthy of your best. Is there something in your heart that you're holding back? Are you giving a lot, but you, you, there are things you say no to the Lord? All right. And what can you do this week, right? Just this week, to love him more with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see and understand that you're, you're worthy. That you, you are more valuable than anything that we might possess. And that we would, with open hands and open hearts, give you of the first fruits, give you of the best of our lives. That we would know that freedom and joy sacrificially giving to you because we love you and we, we know that you're worthy and we're grateful. Thank you for giving us time to just stop and in a sense kind of shut the gates for a moment and contemplate who you are, who we are in relationship to you and what it means uh, to give you our best. Let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge that uh, you gave first and you gave most. You gave what was actually most valuable to you, you gave the life of your son. And so it's only appropriate for us to turn around and, and give just a, a small response. Um, we can't equal the sacrifice that you made. Father, we want to give you our, our best. We want to give you our all. And I pray that even this week, that you just show us really practical ways that maybe our, our hearts are gripping onto things and that we haven't released. 
see new ways that we could experience the freedom of giving our all, giving our best, giving our most to you as a response of worship because you're worthy. There's none like you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week worshiping. We'll be back in Malachi next week.